You're listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Welcome to By the Well. I'm Sean Winter. And I'm Kylie Crabb. And today we're looking at readings for the eighth Sunday in Pentecost, looking at Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 19a. Then we're going to go and look at Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 25. And then finally, we're going to look at Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30, and then verses 36 to 43. Kylie, great to be talking to you. Um, We're going to start off with Genesis and the story of Jacob and his ladder. Um, uh, Tell us a bit about what's going on. Just set the scene for us in the story of Jacob here. Yes, thanks, Sean, and great to be here uh, talking with you too. Um, So Jacob here in this story is just, he's out on a bit of a journey. He's been sent out from home. In fact, he's looking for a wife and he's going to, uh, he's he's making this journey and then he's sleeping, he goes to sleep. You'll see a bit of detail in the story about a, a rock that he's got with him, a stone that he sleep, uh, puts his head on while he's sleeping and then it's going to come up again later in the story as well. Um, and then he has this extraordinary dream. Uh, it's a dream where there is, um, in fact, not a ladder to heaven as we often talk about the Jacob's ladder. Uh, I understand it's something a bit more like a kind of pile of rocks. So it's like a stairway. So if you need to sing the song Stay about away Stairway to Heaven, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That C- could cultural feature. Cultural reference dropped in. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That can feature this week. Um, or maybe like a ramp. So something that um, probably uh, was um, reminiscent of Mesopotamian um, temple structures, uh, something like this that would call to mind that. But of course, something much more extraordinary is going on here in this story. Yeah. So, um, so that notion of a kind of connection between heaven and yes. earth. I mean, it reminds me a bit of the Tower of Babel story, where again that kind of Mesopotamian imagery seems to be yes. in the background. I think so. So the idea is that he has a dream in which, um, you know, the the stone on which his head is resting becomes this kind of pathway up towards heaven in some way or another. Yep. Um, and uh, and the the sto- the dream itself then has this kind of deep significance. This is a pretty significant moment in the Jacob story and in the story of um, the patriarchal narratives overall. Where, yeah. where does the significance lie? What's the importance and, and um, uh, uh, weight and significance yeah, of the yeah. dream? Yeah, yeah. great. They're great questions. And of course, commentators have had plenty of things to say about that and wonder about it themselves and think about these, these messengers, these angels that are descending on on it or on on him on Jacob and and up and down, uh, what what on earth that could mean? But certainly, it's communicating some kind of really close relationship between heaven and earth. Um, and then we get this this um, experience where moving from the dream, then Jacob has this encounter with the Lord, who who um, uh, confirms for him his presence with him, um, and. And the importance that that God will be with him, and sort of t- speaks about this um, this experience about being the um, you know the the promise that is of course familiar to us by this stage in right. Genesis so about the, the offspring about, and yeah. and the expand like the the territory that will be covered by the uh, descendants of this family. Um, so so I think that there is something quite interesting there about this kind of combination of the promise that will spread everywhere with God being present to to Jacob and his offspring throughout that. And then this very particular 
experience in this particular place. Right, right, right. So let's pick up the first of those, this, yeah. this idea that um, it's a dream that confirms the, patri- the promises to the patriarchs, yes. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Um, it does it in a really interesting way because it does it initially in anticipation of the story of Israel mm. um, in verse uh, 13, I think it is. I am the Lord, uh, God of Abraham, Father, God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Mm. So this is the promise of the land um, yes. to uh, Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Bethel, by the way, is um, kind of a bit north of Jerusalem. It marks a kind of transition between two of the tribal areas, I think. But when we get to verse 16, know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. Mm. Now that is anticipating not just the story of the inheritance of the land, but the story of the move to Egypt and yeah. the exodus, that there's, there's a return to the land. So, yes. so the story kind of collapses the time frame mm. of not just the story of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but also the story of Moses and the people of Israel returning to inherit the land that God had, had promised them. So it becomes this really significant uh, moment of confirmation of how that story will unfold, I think, and mm. God's covenant faithfulness, which is mm. a dominant theme throughout this section of Genesis. Mm. Yep, absolutely. So it's also um, going back to your point about the Bethel, we've got, um, of course, there's a bit of etymology behind there mm. that might not be obvious to everyone, but of course this means house of God, Bet yep. and El. So uh, we're getting this sense of an, a really important um we're getting a, a backstory to an important sanctuary explained here um, as as part of this experience that Jacob has. So a kind of, I don't know, we might think of it as being like a centre place um, amidst this spread of the land that's promised that, as you say, Sean, that they're going to um, be in and then be um, removed from and then come come back to. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a kind of sanctuary yeah. uh, and encounter tradition and, and probably is the kind of founding story for some kind of sanctuary that did exist yes. in this location for yes. a significant uh, period of time, the Bethel yes. sanctuary. Um, I mean, those two themes together, the motif of um, journey, the unfolding of the covenant promises, the anticipation of the exodus, the return to the promised land, and then this notion of a, a kind of a, a, a place of encounter, a place mm. of mystery and holiness and God's particular kind of presence and holiness that that mm. that's a real juxtaposition isn't it i think and, and yes. both of them are kind of going on here um what do you think the significance is particularly of the notion of this encounter what it, what is it that J- mm. jacob encounters about god do you think or what yes. sense of god does he get from this dream yeah yeah i mean i it's a great question because also one of the things that i really notice about the way that jacob responds is he responds with fear yeah, so right. which is of course what you expect yeah. you know this is also part of the type of the kind of epiphany the encounter right. with god kind of story but we get this combination of i think i think you've you've already put it very well about this kind of combination of the holiness the the particular place of this sanctuary and the everyday kind of experience and yet god is promising presence throughout all all of that right, so right, right. that you're having this um this story that will be foundational for for israel that is going to continue um that uh god god is with israel um yep. with jacob as as he continues on um but also kind of known and made particularly holy um 
particular experiences that will be very holy. And that sense of space and place throughout mm. all of it, everyday space and particular space that introduces all sorts of other things about holiness and purity and all of the things that will become important for the for Israel's cult. Yeah. It, it strikes me that it, again, anticipates the Exodus story. So you yeah. have the wilderness wanderings and then you get yeah. Sinai. Yes. And Sinai is where you stop. Yeah. And Sinai is where the encounter takes place and Sinai is where God's holiness is manifest in a way that means that only Moses can really, yeah. you need special revelation to actually have access yeah. to God at that point. Even though God's been kind of accompanying Israel all the way as they've walked along in the in the meantime. Exactly, even though you've got this pillar of cloud yeah. and everything that's accompanying you. Exactly, I think it's got both those things together. So I think in terms of preaching on this text, there's a lot to wonder about, about how, how we explain those kind of, um, that uh, movement within, our own lives I guess the the moments when we have a particular encounter or sense of the nearness of God or our need for God mm-hmm. and um and that which might also give us a kind of um guiding insight about the way in which God through the community through the the experience of God directly in prayer is present through us in all the other times when we're not paying attention to it either so this kind of movement i think is part of our experience as so well. christian community as a, a location a place mm. where god is encountered and experienced but also mm. something that is on the move and on a journey and the, the, the two things always belonging together in some way or another exactly i think so those yes. are really suggestive thoughts thanks carney did you know you could join our facebook group by the well for extra content and discussion So moving then on to Romans, um, Sean, tell us a bit about this. Of course, this is following on. We've had we've had the beginning of Romans 8 last week and then we've got this section which is, oh, frankly, there are so many different bits in this and so many dense bits you could just focus on one bit of it. But if we begin, um, Sean, can you unpack for us a bit maybe this kind of dense language about um, adoption, heirs, or this kind of language uh, in this passage? Uh, well, I'll have a go. Yeah. Uh, as you, as you, you absolutely rightly say. So, when you're preaching from these kinds of texts, um, you either need, I think, to zoom right out and to ask, kind of, what's what's the what's the main thing that's being done, and try and convey that, or you kind of zoom in onto one or two of the details and kind of focus on that and make that the focus of uh, what you want to talk about. So, Paul in Romans eight um, is coming towards the end of uh, a sustained argument about the way in which. Um, believers, those who uh, come to have faith in Christ or who somehow share in Christ's own faithfulness, how those believers come to enter into the fullness of the experience of what God has done and is doing and will do in um, what Paul elsewhere calls the new creation. Mm. And uh, Romans 8 kind of brings this all to a head, having dealt with all of that tricky stuff about what it means, particularly in relation to the law, the Jewish law. That was kind of Romans 7. Yeah. Beginning of Romans 8, Paul transitions out, and really what he does in the rest of Romans 8 is fills the vacuum. It's not a vacuum, but he fills the space that has been created by saying, well, if it's not according to the law, and it's not straightforwardly according to the kind of covenant promises given to Israel, what does it start to look like? Um, 
And what's really striking to me is that he talks initially in Romans 8, particularly in verses 12 through to 17, initially about the experience of the Spirit. Um, We are debtors not to the flesh, um, but we live now according to the Spirit. And all who uh, are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall fall into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. That sounds like Old Testament language. Mm. It sounds like Exodus language. It sounds like the language of God being concretely present with God's people as they move from slavery Mm. into some form of liberation or freedom. But it's also deeply um, uh, Christological language because for Paul, the only way in which that's now possible is if we somehow come to share in a relationship with God through the Spirit that actually was Christ's own relationship with God. So we have this extraordinary thing in the middle of it that um, it's when we cry, Abba, Father. So when yeah. we yeah. when we utter the prayer that Jesus himself prayed, then the Spirit bears witness that we are the children uh, of God and therefore we're the heirs. So um, the language is uh, kind of resonant with these patriarchal narratives, um, ancestry, mm. descendants, inheritance, all of those things. Um, but what's crucial for Paul now is the experience of the Spirit. And he thinks that the experience of the Spirit doesn't come to us um, in some kind of abstract or um, uh, a generalized way. The experience of the Spirit comes as we place ourselves into the story of Jesus and come to learn what it means to, for example, to pray as Jesus prayed. Mm. That's the source of our liberation and that what will lead us to our inheritance. Mm. Yeah, great. Like, and great making the connection into Exodus because we've also got then this stuff about that I'm, I'm wondering about if there's other stuff to think about with this, with the, the language about creation and the language about slavery. And I'm yeah. thinking about, you know, you're reminding me of bits of Exodus as well. Maybe when, this week's not about Exodus, but we keep talking about Exodus. But, <laughs> you know, the, the stuff about... Um, you know, like longing for the flesh pots of, <laughs> of right, Egypt, you right, know, like right, wanting, wanting to, go, to back go back into slavery. So what is, I mean, should we be a bit awkward when Paul uses language of slavery in a contemporary setting? What is he doing here? Well, that, oh, that, that that's a big debate in New yeah. Testament studies for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, at uh, one level, this is probably the most, the clearest place in which Paul is quite clearly using some form of metaphorical language, yeah. albeit evoking uh, the history of Israel where, Israel was enslaved mm, um, mm. to uh, Egyptian despots to the Pharaoh. Um, elsewhere in Paul, uh, slavery language, though, really kind of shifts along mm. the figurative to quite literal spectrum. Um, and the relationship between those two ideas is really, really interesting. Mm. One of the ways of thinking about this is to ask how would slaves have heard that language yeah. of slavery. Yeah, yeah. So whatever Paul's intention might have been, if we assume that the first audience of Romans included a significant proportion of enslaved people yep. um, and uh, people who had experienced significant hardship, suffering, were on the lowest levels of whatever social scale was operative um, in the city of Rome at the time, mm. then to talk about the receiving of an inheritance um, I think does constitute some form of good news. It, it's at least language that potentially connects with people's experience. And the reason I say that is because the other language that Paul reaches for here, and it comes now in verses 18 and following, is the language of suffering. 
yes. is the language of struggle and suffering and um, uh, uh, childbirth, <laughs> the yes. suffering of childbirth, yes. anticipating this idea that there will come a time when that period is over and when um, something new can be can begin. Yes, yes. So I think that's, uh, I mean, there's a, uh, we need to be, careful about how we think about slavery language um uh, uh it's probably more problematic in galatians than it is in romans where paul goes on to say and now that you've been delivered from slavery you should become slaves again mm. <laughs> he doesn't quite say that here mm. um the other striking thing about it then is this move from the experience of the believer to the experience of creation yes. and i think that's a really important um shift and we'll talk about it uh, again a bit next week as the kind of argument builds and builds yes. and builds and builds to a crescendo yeah but it offers us some i, I mean this uh, this chapter of romans famously offers us some really good material to work with when we're thinking about that ecological crisis and how all these things fit together how we're going to make sense of course in in some of the things about um here about divine responsibility in that context and we'll we can think more about that as well I think for me one of the bits that um you know just towards the end of the section that's set for this week um the thing that really strikes me you know this idea about hope and that hope um that is seen is not hope so it sort of stops being hope um at that point I remember it's kind of a um rather mundane example of this but I remember um during classes on this text Brendan Byrne talking about um and of course we're here in Melbourne so there are trams in Melbourne talking about um the difference between waiting for a tram when you can see that tiny little bit that connects to the electrical wire bit above the tram coming up over the crest of the hill or when you can't see that coming and that you might even know that the tram is late and you're still waiting. So it's not hope any longer when you can see the bit of the very bit top bit of the tram coming over the coming over the crest, um, but only when you trust that it's coming anyway. And then we can have a whole other conversation about what's the ground of your hope right. that it that right. that what you're waiting for right. is actually going to come. Yeah. Um, um, that's a very Melbourne version. Yeah, it's a very of, Melbourne of, version. Of, of, a, of, a, of a Rudolf Bultmann um, <laughs> illustration of the notion of the coming kingdom of God where Bultmann says at one point, I think it's, it's like a train coming in towards the station. You can't see the train, but what yes. you can feel is the wind, wind coming towards you as the train is arriving. Yeah, yeah. So, um, that maybe that- <laughs> expands the image for a few more people. Fair That's call, right. Sean. Yes, um, I think it's absolutely true. So, what what does what does hope mean? Well, hope can't mean um, you can see it all around you because if you see mm. it all around you and you're still suffering, yes then your deliverance and your redemption and the future promise of God is yet to be fulfilled. Yes. So if you're suffering, um, you look for what is not seen and yet there is something yes. <laughs> that gives you the confidence that that is, is coming. And what Paul, what, what is fascinating about this text and what preachers should exploit and have the courage to talk about is that Paul names that thing as something that is not only there for those who are in church, who are believers, it's something that is there for the whole of creation itself. And creation itself is capable of feeling it or seeing it or glimpsing it and therefore of experiencing the same kind of hope. Um, and I think that's just a wonderful, wonderful image. Um, the language of creation here is uh, pretty clearly, I think, a reference to 
everything that God has created except for human beings. So mm. it really is a word that denotes mm. non-human creation mm. or in all its variety and um, breadth. Um, and it becomes kind of personified um, and personified profoundly in the experience of this um, mother going through labour pains and anticipating mm. the birth of something new. It's extraordinarily powerful imagery. And if you don't preach on this text and not talk about you know, God's mission in the wider world, then yep. um, you've missed, missed the, the point. point yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll go to the gospel in just a minute. So we're at Matthew chapter 13. Uh, Matthew 13 is um, one of the Matthean discourses. It consists largely of a set of uh, parables, some longer, some shorter. We looked at the parable of the sower in a previous week. Um, we're here at the parable of the weeds. Carly, when I read this, um, the question that I wanted to ask you was, uh, I mean, clearly when we read parables, there's a pretty strong consensus that we are reading a kind of form of speech or a form of communication that goes somehow back to the historical Jesus, that Jesus spoke in parables and um, these parables are remembered and transmitted because they were kind of characteristic speech forms or teaching forms. And that raises the question, when we read a parable in the gospel, we always have a couple of options. We, 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 we can either say, okay, we're going to try and think about what Jesus originally meant by that parable. Mm. Or we can say, we'll try and work out what the parable means in the context of Matthew 13 and the theology and narrative of Matthew's gospel. Yeah. Um, I mean, in your preaching experience, is that something you've kind of worked with or do you just kind of go for, I'm just going to do what's in the text and leave the history yeah, stuff yeah. behind? Yeah, well, uh, well, of course, this is a question with very long history <laughs> and, um, and it's super tricky, really. I mean, I think something about noticing the kernel of this story there there is something helpful about doing that um, and we might notice it particularly in the kind of um, earthy agricultural style imagery and stuff that maybe doesn't translate so well to other contexts so you sort of need to ask some of those questions to work that out yep. um, but on the other hand I think that um, uh, it it is I it is a very difficult endeavour, one that I would not normally engage in, to try and imagine layers to the text behind the text we actually have. And I don't mean when there's a manuscript variant and you know different, all the different manuscripts have something different in them and you think, oh, well, maybe this was added by a scribe later. I mean um, a, a sort of um, decades-long endeavour of biblical scholars in the kind of early part of the 20th century to try and – rip apart the text and work out which layer was introduced where. And, and which goes back to Jesus and which was the invention of the church and indeed, those things. Indeed, yeah, indeed. As though uh, what's really going on here is that someone had a hansard of what Jesus said, you know, a kind of parliamentary affirmed copy of exactly what he said and then they just took lines of it out of, out of this thing and then inserted their own material around it so you can just strip it off this is clearly not what happened so if there was a if there's a kernel you know maybe going back to oral tradition and stuff so this is one of the other reasons why people think of parables like this because they um they seem like stories you could remember yeah. and retell and yeah. stuff like that which is great um but they also have a particular setting within a new text a new context uh and and um, this is one that we just uh, get here in Matthew, um, and so it's not, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's not giving us all that other um, 
uh, original stuff necessarily. What it's giving us is what Matthew wants us to know about this story. So one of the things that we might also particularly notice here, and you'll notice it when you look at your lectionary because it's going to skip a chunk and um, little spoiler alert, it's going to come back to you next week because that bit that's missing here is next week's lectionary. Um, but we've got the parable and we've got the re. We've got the explanation. That's yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. And it used to be said that, you know, the parable may go back to Jesus, but the interpretation, the church Indeed. invented those kinds of things. I, I agree entirely, it's, but I, I think it's quite important to say this because a lot of preaching on yes. parables I hear, people automatically kind of default into this is what Jesus really said and this yes. is what Jesus really... And I think those things... I, I'm a great believer in uh, questing for the historical Jesus, but I yep. don't think you can do it yep. by separating word word. out... Yep. authentic from 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 inauthentic um and uh the most recent kind of major study of the parables um john myers um volume in his historical jesus series i mean he surveys all the parables have I mean, there are 37 of them and says yep. that really only two of them have any chance oh, really? of being deemed to be authentic so yep. um is, if you, is it if this you, one sean tell I, us if it's this one don't think oh right okay well then one. but there we are so that's uh, it. you heard it here folks just you know <laughs> so well what what's really interesting to me out of what you said and let's ask it in relation to this parable yeah. is uh, to go for the key, the kernel, the main idea, and to ask the question, well, in a text like Matthew, why would Matthew yes. preserve a parable that has this idea, yes. assuming that he does so for the purposes of Christian education, um, edification, instruction yep. in some way or another? So the parable of the weeds or the tares, sometimes yep. it's called, yep. what's the kernel? What's being said yeah, yeah. At, at the core? Yeah. So there's this, you know, people will know the story, right? We've got this thing where there are um, good seeds that are planted out, but someone has come along, the evil one, and planted some others, and then things are growing up. So you've got uh, the you've got these weeds and you've got the original wheat plant, the good plant growing up. And uh, while the enthusiastic people want to go through and get rid of the weeds right from the get-go, uh, the instruction is to no wait because you'll disrupt the good growth that's going on at the same time if you try and do that. So um, there, I, th I think that there is actually something quite moving about this story. In the one hand, you've got this idea that we should um, let the good – you know, if you've got any chance of good growth happening here, you should let it grow um, and, and wait. Of course, in the context of Matthew's Gospel, where people will – probably know there's some pretty confronting parables with a kind of end date in mind where thing you know the the weeping and gnashing of teeth thing is the Matthean specialty um you know the the point is also potentially more explanatory than predictive which mm. is to say you will notice as you look around that mm. there's some bad stuff happening mm. and it seems to be totally unchecked it's uh, continuing yeah. you know yeah. uh but don't you worry there's a reason for that mm. And it's going to come to an end. And, and and don't feel that your job is to to identify that now and sort it out and deal. With, you know, yes. so it's a. Uh, um, I mean, insofar as Matthew has teaching about you know non-rich retribution and yes. you know yes. non-vindictive punishment. I mean, God as judge has a harsh judgment side, but yeah. we're not to undergo that judgment on God's behalf. Yes, the instruction is under the eschatological time frame to wait until the time of the harvest. Is that right? Exactly. I yeah. think that's exactly right. So there could be an explanation in here that is solace to someone with very little power. You yep. know, you're talking Good. before about the original audience of 
Paul's letters potentially having a whole lot of slaves in it, and and you know all this. So who is the who is the first audience of um, early Christian literature? Yeah. These biblical texts. Um, so yes, this is solace there, and it is also a warning for somebody who thinks um, that they can go through and work out what's a weed and what what might be good, you know, what's what's good growth and what's got no chance of being good growth, and uh, I guess that's what part of the. The heritage or legacy of this parable is actually some very enthusiastic attempts to do to do um, to to wonder about that. This kind of harsh, which you might get in other parables in Matthew too. This that encourage a kind of us and them, you yeah. know, going on. Um, I guess what I would also say as part of that is that there are some pretty confronting parables elsewhere elsewhere in Matthew that I think we can read alongside this, like mm-hmm. some of the parables in Matthew 25, like the sheep and the goats, which give new content to thinking about what might really be a weed and what might really be uh, the wheat. Right, because you know. weeds are in the eye of the beholder, right? Is, yes. That's, that's the reality. I think that's exactly right. And the sheep and the goats narrative, yes. which has a similar dualistic eschatological judgment of separation, yes. Um, uh, really starts to mess around with the categories in a way that almost um, subverts or confuses what we might think we already know on the basis of this parable. I I think preaching these parables is is tricky work, um, but I think people... Uh, very often avoid it because they're afraid of of um, talking about themes of judgment, which are mm. quite clearly a part of what Matthew uh, wants to convey. I think your point that um, the reason that they're there is because actually the promise of divine judgment <clears throat> is uh, something which offers solace to those who have mm. no power is a really important thing. And I'd only add to it, the other thing that it does is it it, it demands a choice. Mm. So, so this dark dualism (laughs) you know there's going to be a time when you'll be on one side or the other Mm. raises the question okay well which side are you on Mm. (laughs) where Mm. are you going to be um and i think that kind of more existential reading of it that actually we the message of jesus does confront us with decisions about allegiance and Mm. um, priorities and Mm. uh where we dedicate our lives and commit our time and our energy and our resources to all of those things kind of flow out of Mm. this very stark eschatological material that we still need to wrestle with yes indeed and as you say that there are other parts of matthew's gospel that will put a bit more flesh on the bones of that and tell and give us a bit more of a um maybe a confronting idea about well what what does it mean what do these priorities mean um and they're maybe not as simplistic as it might be you know it's not inside the church or outside of the church you know this parable is the whole field is the whole world it's not the church um and so it's 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 inviting us into a bigger picture about what faithful living looks like as well i think that's great kylie thank you thanks sean by the well is brought to you by pilgrim theological college and the uniting church in australia it's produced by adrian jackson thanks for listening